Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 45. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about the overtures composed for Beethoven's only completed opera, originally titled Leonora in the earlier versions and Fidelio in the final version. Opera overtures by the late 18th and early 19th centuries were single-movement works often based loosely on sonata form. They occasionally made reference to themes from the opera itself, but this was by no means automatic, and frequently overtures were used to set the scene and give an overall impression of the mood and style of the opera. Take, for example, Mozart's famous overture to The Marriage of Figaro, perhaps his greatest opera buffa. It bustles with energy and perfectly encapsulates the comic spirit of the opera to come without quoting any major thematic ideas from it. Here are the opening measures. Again, for the sake of comparison, we'll turn for a minute to another famous Mozart overture, the one composed for Die Zauberflirte, or the Magic Flute. It is, like Beethoven's opera, a Zingspiel, originally sung in German, with some spoken dialogue. And, again like Beethoven, it has a serious side to it, particularly in its references to Masonic ideals and rituals recreated in part within the opera. Of course, the opera also has a very well-developed comic side to it as well, and all of this is reflected in the overture. Here's the opening, the three chords we first hear, summoning up a Masonic ritual. A little later, we encounter a fugal section. Now, at this point, most listeners would have been conditioned to associate fugal activity with serious business of some sort. And yet, the nature of the theme that is treated fugally is such that it seems more than a little tongue-in-cheek. As the overture proceeds, there are some more clearly lighthearted passages that wouldn't have been out of place in the Figaro overture. Still, the Magic Flute overture represents a more complicated case, and it does so because Beethoven designed it to reflect all aspects of the drama to come and to alert the listener to the fact that serious and lighter elements would be intermingled. We'll take a quick look at one more Mozart overture the one introducing Don Giovanni. It is primarily a comic work, but it's not without a few serious moments, most notably near the conclusion when a statue comes to life and drags Don Giovanni down to hell. Here are the opening measures of the overture, ominous intention-filled right from the start.
And yet, quite a bit later in the overture, almost two minutes in in most performances, we are finally treated to a more light-hearted theme, clearly designated as such by the tempo and articulation pattern employed, one that tips us off that there will be plenty of comic moments ahead. Okay, let's now turn to Beethoven's overtures. There are four associated with the different versions of his opera, titled Leonora in the earlier version and Fidelio in the final version. And the numbering of these four is a bit confusing. The overture dubbed Leonora No. 1 was actually composed in 1807 for a performance of the opera that never materialized, and I'm not going to comment on that one. Leonora No. 2 was composed in 1804 and 1805 for the first performance of the opera and is a worthy work. Leonora No. 3, composed in 1806, is a redesigned and improved version of Leonora II, and I will focus on it while making a few comparisons with Leonora II, its earlier version. Then there is the overture composed in 1814 for the final version of the opera, now renamed Fidelio. We're going to begin by taking a look at some of the differences between Leonora No. 2 and No. 3. This is a topic that has garnered quite a bit of interest over the decades, with a number of notable Beethoven scholars making contributions, including Donald Tovey and Alan Tyson as well as a master's thesis by Niall Turner, which deals at length with this issue, among others. I'm not going to attempt to match that level of detail in this podcast, but I will be making a few points about some of the most important changes. We'll start with the introduction to Leonora No. 2. We're in C major, 3-4 time, with an opening marking of Adagio. The opening measures begin with a repeated three-note descending motive starting on the fifth scale degree in the key, a half note followed by two quarters, the first note marked fortissimo and the second to piano. It's a dramatic gesture, to be sure, as well as a little bit ominous, due in part to the fortissimo timpani stroke on the second beat. After the opening motive is repeated, as you heard, it's transformed into a quiet descending scale played in octaves by the strings that moves down an octave, landing on a surprising F-sharp a gesture that immediately injects some tonal uncertainty into the mix. Now here are the opening measures from Leonora number 3.
As you heard, we begin fortissimo again, but immediately start to decrescendo, down to piano, and a couple of measures later, all the way to pianissimo. We hear the dramatic timpani stroke only on beat one this time, and the opening motive is a bit different. It again starts on the fifth of the scale, but the first note in the woodwinds is longer and ties immediately into a descending scale. That first three-note motive from Leonora II is gone. We descend again all the way down to F-sharp, and as before, that F-sharp adds some short-range tonal ambiguity into the mix. We soon find ourselves in B minor, a key that is obviously fairly remote from our starting point of C major. Do these modifications to the opening measures constitute a significant change? Perhaps not, although it depends on how you judge significance here. The opening measure is a little less dramatic, missing that fortissimo timpani strike on beat 2, and the action overall moves a little faster. Beethoven compresses the opening measures, eliminating that original repeated three-note motive and moving directly to the descending scale line, all the way down to F-sharp. The next important thematic idea is introduced in Measure 9 in Leonora No. 2, and it's clearly based on an aria sung by Florestan, one of the most important characters of the opera, as he wastes away in his dungeon cell, yearning for freedom. I'll obviously situate the characters and basic plot elements at greater detail in the next episode where we're dealing with the entire opera. The version of the melody and the harmony heard here is a little different from the version first sung by Florestan. Although the key is the same, A-flat major, there's a little more chromatic activity beneath the melody here. Here's a version of the same melody as heard in Leonora 3. The two versions are very similar, but they are not quite the same. The melody has been changed slightly in Leonora III, particularly the rhythmic values, and the orchestral accompaniment has been modified. The horns played a fairly prominent role in Leonora No. 2, but are missing completely in No. 3, at least initially. The strings are a little more active here in No. 3, and playing a little higher in their range, a bit more noticeable. Still, the differences are fairly minor. As we proceed through the introduction, there are some other changes as well. We shift keys to B major in both versions, but after a lighter, almost pastoral-like section based largely on delicate staccato arpeggios, we pass rather unexpectedly into a swirling fortissimo interruption on A-flat.
After that series of aggressive and rather noisy exclamation points, Beethoven turns to a more delicate, almost coquettish little melody that references the opening notes of the Florestan aria, which you heard right at the end of my excerpt. Now here is the corresponding passage in Leonora number no. 3. Again, similar but not the same. In Leonora II, we heard two swirling fortissimo chords. Here we have only one, although in both cases we hear a series of shorter punctuating chords following the swirling chord. And as you heard at the end of my excerpt, following those punctuating chords, we turn again to a gentler, more lyrical theme. Not identical to the one heard in Leonora II, but like it, summoning up the lyrical poignance of Florestan's aria theme. Although we're leaving out a lot here in the introduction, we're going to move on now to the first subject. It's worth mentioning that the length of the introduction is a fair amount less in Leonora III, 20 measures, about two minutes less in performance time, because some measures have been deleted, as in the example I just referred to, and some ideas have been compressed. The introduction in both cases closes, after its dramatic fortissimo explosions, with a quieter, vaguely ominous passage before yielding to the exposition, C major, cut time, and marked allegro. The first theme is a dynamic one, bold, confident, maybe even heroic, even though first appearing pianissimo in the cellos. We've seen a fair amount of the heroic Beethoven in the middle period works we've looked at in recent episodes, and we won't see as much of that side of the composer as we move into the final period. The reasons for that are various, and we'll deal with some of them as we go, but for those particularly interested in Beethoven's heroic style, I'd like to recommend, again, Scott Burnham's Beethoven Hero from Princeton University Press. For now, we'll hear the first theme that opens the exposition in the version heard in Leonora No. 2. The opening four-bar pentatonic phrase, played by the cellos against throbbing eighth notes on the tonic in the violas and a sustained tonic in the horns, may at first seem merely cheerful rather than actually heroic. But as it crescendos and the accompanying texture thickens, and a variant of the opening phrase is repeated a third higher, and then the first two measures are repeated again and again, sequentially in an ascending pattern, it sounds increasingly resolute, climaxing with a fortissimo presentation by the entire orchestra.
Here's the same theme in the Leonora III version. The melody now doubled an octave higher in the first violins. The excerpt is a little longer this time, flowing into the second part of the theme where the harmony moves to the subdominant. At this point in the Leonora II version, the texture is reduced dramatically, and the new articulation pattern, two slurred eighth notes followed by two staccato eighth notes, very suggestive of comic opera bustle, is actually easier to follow than in Leonora III, where virtually the entire orchestra is blazing away on the new thematic idea. At the point where my excerpt ended, we're still in C major, and haven't yet begun the sort of modulation expected in a sonata form. But that's soon to change. But the modulation isn't a gradual one. In a repeated pattern, the G, the dominant note in the key of C, drops down unexpectedly to F sharp. I must admit it's not completely unexpected. And we seem to be moving toward B minor the passage energized by very typical offbeat sforzando accents. But we don't stay securely in B for very long, as a chromatic descent in the bass line starts to pull us away and take us into uncertain tonal territory, almost as if the confidence of the pentatonic theme is temporarily being shaken. But in the end, we return to B. The note is sustained, and some solo horn fifths deliver us to the second subject. Here is that modulation in the Leonora III version. Leonora II features a new section after the modulation begins, one making use of a repeated short, 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 long pattern, three upbeat eighths followed by a quarter note, the same rhythmic pattern associated with the fate motive in the first movement of the Fifth Symphony. This section, by the way, is missing in Leonora III. Next, we encounter the second subject in both versions. They're different, but some characteristics are shared. In Leonora No. 2, oboes and cellos state the main melodic idea, one that unfolds softly and slowly in E major, initially in descending half notes. In measure 7 and 8, a surprising diminished 7th chord disrupts the flow and sends us temporarily to F major. Here is a simplified example of the first part of the second subject, beginning in E major, melody only. Moving against this initially in contrary motion is a countermelody, played in octaves by second violins and violas. It's shorter, lapsing after two measures into a series of quarter-note triplets that serve an accompanying role. Here is a simplified example of the first three bars of that countermelody. Here's the passage in question in performance both parts of the second subject. You'll hear the second part extended by sequential repetitions as it begins to move toward the closing section. 
Now turning to Leonora III, the solo horn fifths I mentioned earlier introduce the second subject, also beginning in E major. It opens with the same two measures heard in the countermelody to the second subject in Leonora II. And although the overall melodic shape from that point on is different than in Leonora II, it ends, after seven measures, with another disruptive diminished seventh chord, just as it did in Leonora II. And the second part of the second subject in this version is again in F major, initially, and resembles the other version to some extent, although it's by no means an exact copy. And, as in Leonora II, the melody is extended by a series of sequential repetitions. Here is the second subject in Leonora III. Here's a section from Leonora III that occurs after the second subject, after the sequential repetitions I just referred to, that might be heard as a closing section. It features a lot of rhythmic energy with less focus on distinctive thematic material, although several staccato arpeggio patterns do emerge that recall the pentatonic first subject. By the way, in a comparable passage in Leonora II, Beethoven does not merely reference those pentatonic motives from the first subject, he actually quotes them at some length. But here in Leonora III, after a series of some very Beethoven-esque offbeat sforzando accents, the horns and woodwinds take center stage again, after which more descending and diminishing pentatonic arpeggios, which serve as a sort of codetta, take us quietly to the end of the exposition. So, here's the closing section, going into that very gentle codetta, still in E major and signaled by the horn calls, but lapsing into E minor in the last few measures leading up to the development section. The development section begins with a bang, with a tension-filled E-diminished seventh chord that no one would have been expecting, and a rapid eighth-note theme that first swirls up and down the scale and then ascends up an octave and a half. It's heard in the low strings, second violin, and bassoons against a sustained E-diminished seventh chord above it. Here's a little bit of it at the beginning of the section. It goes by very quickly. After just four bars, and with the tonality still in doubt, it passes to a new idea. You could argue that this new theme is not completely new, since it begins somewhat like the opening melodic phrase in the introduction, that is, with a descending melodic line. But melodic shape is far from being the only thing that defines the character of a melody. In the case of this new thematic idea, the rhythmic and articulation patterns employed are quite distinctive and quite different from those that characterize the earlier idea. Its harmonic identity is also rather unique. It's presented initially over another diminished seventh chord. And the orchestration here is also quite distinctive, with solo oboe and bassoon presenting the melody over a reduced texture accompaniment in the strings.
Staying now with Leonora III, there are, of course, other thematic ideas presented in the development section. It's no surprise that the pentatonic first subject receives quite a bit of play, particularly when the key shifts to C minor for a while. Sometimes it's just the syncopated rhythm we hear, the short-long, short-short-long pattern associated with that earlier theme. But we are going to jump to near the end of the development section, where Beethoven introduces a very operatic element. It's no secret that the opera follows the mode of the so-called rescue operas of the sort that flourished around the time of the French Revolution. And Beethoven's plot quite literally involves one such rescue. A devoted wife, Leonora, although she goes by the name Fidelio to hide her true identity, rescuing her husband, Floristan, from wasting away in a dungeon as a political prisoner. I'll provide more details in the next episode, of course, but suffice it to say for now that one of the most dramatic moments in the opera involves a trumpet call which signals that the governor and his soldiers have arrived just in time to prevent the evil overseer of the prison from doing his worst. So the trumpet call is a very important part of the plot and really represents the salvation of the prisoner and his wife. And here it is, presented twice near the end of the development section. We'll hear only the first time. There follows a quieter, very gentle passage, one which also appears at the same point in the opera and is sometimes referred to as a prayer of thanksgiving for being rescued from the evil overseer of the prison. After this serene meditation, the trumpet call is heard again, and now there is no doubt that the day has been saved. But the recapitulation, at least the true recapitulation, does not begin immediately. Instead, after another quieter passage, we hear a false start as the solo flute announces the first subject in the wrong key, a playful version, duetting with the solo bassoon. But Beethoven refuses to be unabashedly cheerful at this point, and we then encounter another quiet but somewhat tension-filled passage, which ultimately redirects us toward the correct key of C major, where the real recapitulation finally arrives. The recapitulation is predictably a free one, with both of the main subjects returning in the key of C, at least initially, before wandering off into other key areas, and much of the closing section makes a reappearance. But there is also a more surprising reference to the theme from Floristan's aria, which appeared originally in the introduction. It's in C major this time, and in a slightly different version, with elongated note values. But Beethoven dwells on it lovingly, before the tempo jumps up to presto, and we're treated to a multi-part coda, which is sometimes vivacious, sometimes dramatic, and sometimes simply over-the-top in its rousing, triumphal bluster reminiscent of Wellington's victory. Here is the last part of the coda, with the pentatonic theme echoing through the orchestra as we charge into the final measures. 
It's a great overture, but Beethoven chose not to use it when he prepared the final version of his opera, opting instead for a completely different overture in E major, which we'll begin to discuss in just a minute. As you might expect, theories abound on why Beethoven would decide not to begin his opera with such a great overture. There is even some debate as to why he would not have chosen the second Leonora Overture, although most commentators see Leonora III as a much more concentrated and impactful work. We'll hold off on any final conclusions regarding that issue for now and move on to the Fidelio Overture, the one linked to the final version of the opera. The point is often made about this overture that, in comparison with the two Leonora overtures, it is a less ambitious work and one far less connected to the opera itself. And it's easy to see why this point is made when you consider all the connections between Leonora 2 and 3 and the storyline and themes employed in the opera. Even the opening measures of Leonora 3 with their slow descent down an octave to an ominous chromatic note, are sometimes cited as a reference to the descent into Florestan's dungeon cell. It's unclear how many listeners, even those with some sense of the general plot, would make that connection, and there's no clear indication that Beethoven had that symbolism in mind. Still, it's a possible interpretation, and there are other features of the Leonore Three Overture that clearly reference the opera itself. The early quote of Florestan's famous aria theme in the introduction, and the later trumpet calls. So, is there anything in the Fidelio Overture equivalent to those examples? Perhaps not, but that does not mean that the overture does not, in a sense, prepare us for the opera to come. The introduction is a bit unusual. It begins allegro in cut time, and in E major, and the first idea we encounter is a robust, rather military-sounding, and maybe even a little heroic, dotted rhythm theme, trumpets and timpani included, marked with staccatos and played forte. It climbs up the tonic triad in octaves and unisons for three measures before ending on a dominant chord, followed by fermata. The next eight bars, now marked adagio, piano, and dolce, present a sharp contrast, with a much slower-moving and more solemn, perhaps even noble, passage, unfolding mostly in whole notes, opening with first and second horns, harmonizing a 5-1 cadence in thirds and fifths. Four bars later, the clarinets take over, with a similar passage up a fourth over a tonic pedal in the horns. But this new mood is then interrupted by the return of the four-bar allegro section. But now we return again to Adagio, with the bassoons first providing a variant of the original horn duet, but then injecting a few measures of tonal ambiguity as we head towards C major. Once we arrive there, there's nothing ambiguous about the new key. A series of slow-moving chords in the woodwinds unfold in C major over a tonic pedal in the double basses. After six measures of this, the tonality along with the pedal shifts toward B major, and the previously bland harmonic progression begins to take on a slightly more ominous tone, as the timpani adds downbeat strokes which, like the chords above, crescendo steadily on their way to a fortissimo climax. But in the end, we're back in B major, the dynamic level has dropped back down to piano, and the bassoons repeat a version of their earlier duet, while the strings add a new undulating and gradually ascending triplet bass countermelody, which is passed from the firsts through the seconds and then to the violas. It's all really just a prolongation of the dominant note, B, 
and it gets clearer all the time that we're soon to resolve back to E major, and the actual exposition will finally begin, which it does, as we return to Allegro and the horns announce the first subject, one obviously based on an extension of the opening motive of the introduction, but presented much more quietly and delicately here than one might have expected. Here is the last part of the introduction at the entrance of the triplet bass countermelody, finally moving into the exposition with the first subject. In the last few measures of my excerpt, you heard the beginning of the modulatory transition. It's certainly an energetic one, featuring pulsating eighth notes in the string section, including one notable descending pentatonic figure in the first violin. It remains stubbornly in the original key of E major almost to the very end, where it lands on an A sharp, and we find ourselves instantly in the key of B major for the second subject. That second subject is a gentle one, presented piano and lightly textured, and is based on a series of mostly ascending six-note figures, alternating eighths and quarter notes, and slurs with staccato markings. Introduced by the horns, it actually begins in the second violins, harmonized by the violas in thirds. The first violins echo the first phrase up a ninth, resulting in more parallel thirds with the seconds, and with the violas temporarily breaking free and proceeding in contrary motion. The initial four-bar phrase is repeated and then, after a brief feint in the direction of C-sharp minor, starts up again as we begin to crescendo up to forte, assisted by the increasingly busy winds, until we arrive back in E major, only temporarily, of course, and the beginning of the closing section. Here is the end of the modulatory transition going into the second subject. The closing section is admirably energetic, but otherwise unremarkable. So we'll jump to the development section, where the first subject is now presented quietly in C major. But after a few measures, Beethoven seizes again on the descending scale fragment in measures 3 and 4 of that theme, and develops that motive extensively in the woodwinds, usually in thirds, while a close relative of the initial dotted rhythm motive from the first two measures is heard beneath it. Here's the rather brief development section, crescendoing into a recapitulation of the first theme, played by the horns and then solo clarinet over swirling scale passages from first and second violins, back in the original tonic key of E major. The second subject makes its scheduled return in E major as well, but we're going to skip over that and move on to the coda. So far, it's really only the opening measures of the overture that have seemed bold or heroic. And when those opening measures are later transformed into the first subject, 
The theme based on those measures, now Mark Dolce, comes across as surprisingly gentle. So it will probably come as no surprise that in the coda, Beethoven returns to the bolder introductory version of that motive, probably with the notion of whipping up a more rousing conclusion. Once again, we switch tempos back and forth between Allegro and Adagio, although the Adagio horn chords are this time embellished by gentle flute and clarinet arpeggios. And the final tempo switch is to Presto, which drives us by means of the repeated dotted rhythm figure toward the final chords of the overture. Here's an excerpt taking us from the newly embellished horn chords all the way to the conclusion. It's a vigorous conclusion similar to many of Beethoven's overtures and symphonic finales, but the overture as a whole is very different from either of the two Leonora overtures. As to why Leonora III was not chosen for the final version of the opera, some commentators have concluded that it was perhaps too dramatic in the sense that it gave away or made redundant the entire dramatic substance of the opera to come. How could any opera hope to live up to the dramatic power embodied in that overture? Or, more mundanely, the overture was simply too dramatic and too powerful to introduce a first act which seemed to focus initially on lighter, if not almost frivolous matters, concerning the love interests of the younger characters. It's not surprising that a Zingspiel, even one influenced by the French rescue opera tradition of Mayhul and Carabini, that any Zingspiel would feature some light-hearted scenes, and scenes of that sort might well seem almost deflating after such a glorious overture. The Fidelio overture that Beethoven finally decided on was a great curtain-raiser, and to some extent, its opening dotted rhythm motives might be said to prepare us, to some extent at least, for the heroic acts that will unfold before our eyes in the opera. But the overture is, on the whole, generic enough not to give too much away and not to make the opening lighter seams seem trivial when we come upon them. Interestingly, conductors have not always agreed with Beethoven's choices in terms of the overture to Fidelio and have occasionally substituted Leonora No. 3 for the intended Fidelio Overture, even though that has always seemed a bit presumptuous to me. Perhaps a better solution, and one often adopted, is to begin the opera with the Fidelio Overture, but play the wonderful Leonora No. 3 Overture between the acts, hardly to be considered a spoiler at that point. For our next episode, we'll take a look at Fidelio itself, primarily the final version. <laughs> 